0: Hi, I'm Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on
1: feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me Manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of Scripture.
0: While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Hi, everyone.
1: In this episode, we are covering the dates May 29th through June 4th for the chapters Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John chapter 13. In this episode, we're going to focus primarily on three aspects, because even though there's a lot going on, we've covered some of these moments in our Holy Week series. So for this episode, we're going to think about the sacrament or the Last Supper. We're also going to spend time with Jesus in Gethsemane and when the disciples fall asleep, what's happening in that moment. And then finally, we'll end by talking about Peter. Good old Peter.
0: We've got a lot to cover. So we're first going to start with the sacrament. There are actually two different accounts of the sacrament and how it unfolds at the Last Supper. There's an account in Matthew, and there's also an account in Mark, and we're going to be focusing on the Mark account today. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25 read, quote, and as they, the disciples, did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, take, eat this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the new Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. For those who are familiar with the sacrament in the LDS tradition, we'll know that it functions primarily as a symbol of recommitment to Jesus Christ. Each week, members are served the sacrament. They're given a small piece of bread that was torn from a larger loaf and then also a small paper cup filled with water. And all And the sacrament unfolds during the first part of the Sunday meeting. Members are encouraged to consume this symbolic bread and water, quote, in remembrance of Jesus. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body, and the water is his blood. As a side note, as somebody who interacts with paganism on a regular basis, a rite where somebody symbolically consumes the body and blood of another person is pretty hard-ass and one of the most extreme of all witchcraft rites in existence. (laughs) Um, So reading this as a practicing witch was kind of like... Uh, this like really eye-opening experience, like, holy crap, I have been participating in like a kind of extreme ritual for my entire life without really actually knowing it. Um, But a lot of people don't commonly think about it that way. But I do think that it's actually really interesting to talk about the sacrament from that lens for just a moment. In witchcraft, both historical and modern, the act of consumption or the act of taking a substance into one's body is a practice of invitation of the other into the body. Through an act of consumption, inhabitation of the self is encouraged. One is literally inviting the other to inhabit the realm of the self so that the inhabited one may act as though they are the other and the other may act as a self. It's an invitation to the act of co-creation and cohabitation. Viewing the sacrament in this way may illuminate or deepen our relationship to this rite that takes place each week in LDS church buildings. Members invite Christ, or the other, into their bodies, their spirits, and their awareness. Through this invitation, remembrance is achieved. But one may ask the question, the remembrance of what? The Come Follow Me manual from this week states that remembrance is, quote, our way of saying I'll never forget him, not just I'll never forget what I've read about his teachings and his life. Rather, we are saying I'll never forget what he did for me. I'll never forget how he rescued me when I cried out for help. And I'll never forget his commitment to me and my commitment to him, the covenant we have made, end quote. But for me, remembrance is about more than attempting to re-experience something that has already happened. For me, the word remember, and hence the word remembrance, has a double meaning. It means both to remember, as in think back on a memory again, and also to remember, as in put something back together. The sacrament is a ritual of remembrance. It is doing both the in remembrance or in memory of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago in Israel and died on a cross. And it also means acting in remembrance or in repair of Jesus or the body of Christ in which we are all deeply interconnected and interwoven as relational beings. I found myself wishing that along with taking the text literally in terms of the sacrament, that we'd also take it literally in the sense that alongside the simple intake of bread and water was also an output of service. In John chapter 13, we read that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples in humility and in service. And while I understand that it would be wildly impractical on many levels for a weekly sacrament service to also include a small foot bath for each member— I do find myself asking why we stop at receiving Jesus in, but rarely allow Jesus a full embodiment into our beings that would then inspire us to humble acts of service. How is it that we can remember Jesus in our heads, but rarely remember the body of Christ in the world? The sacrament is not a purely spiritual or sacred rite. Like all things Jesus, it's also an initiation into the mundane, and encouragement to the unfamiliar, wild, radical work of tending to our neighbor. In remembrance of Jesus is to remember the spiritual to the secular, to remember the sacred to the mundane. In remembrance of Jesus is more than memory, it's about resurrecting the restoration of holy justice, divine mercy, and unconditional love.
1: I like that you finished this section talking about unconditional love, because I think if we look ahead in the story to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think lots of people read this as a story about unconditional love. And no matter how many times we read the story of Jesus suffering in Gethsemane, I really do still hope that it strikes us as sad. Often, this story risks becoming really commonplace, like, oh, yeah, this is just what happened, or swinging really hard in the other direction and becoming a story about like intense tragic suffering. And I don't know if you or any of our listeners were like had to watch this movie growing up, but I remember in Primary or in Young Women's, we had to watch a movie where there was like a train conductor dad and his son got on the train tracks and he had to choose between saving his son or letting the whole train crash I mean it was just absolutely so traumatizing so upsetting yes and so uh, I don't know what it is for people this week as they're reading this story but for me I'm just feeling so sad mostly because we've been working with pieces or moments or stories of Jesus for the last three and a half years exclusively on the podcast and now we're in the chapters that are just so brutal for him And I hardly ever cry on the podcast, but I was crying so hard last night when I typed up these notes because I just think there's something so painful about Jesus knowing what lies ahead of him and still doing it even though he really doesn't want to. When he cries out in the book of Mark, Abba, or Father, I know that you can do anything, so if that's true, can you please just not make me do this? And from here, I can really kind of spiral out and start thinking about the ethics or the impossibility or the miraculousness of Jesus somehow suffering for all of our sins. And although I don't have all the answers, I do know this is a story about a man who knew what was on his, ori- his horizon and asked if his closest friends could be with him during this time. I imagine him saying things like, you can't do it for me, but can you just stay with me? Can you watch over me? Can you witness my pain that feels too big to comprehend? Can you see me in my suffering so that it's not all for nothing? I don't think I can do this without you. Which makes the disciples' inability to stay awake so heartbreaking. Of this, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney writes that wakefulness is both hard and terrifying because it means to be awake to the world, a world of violence and suffering and tragedy as it is. It means seeing the difficult road ahead and knowing that there's really no rest for the weary. No wonder we would want to close our eyes and slip away into sleep.
0: Yeah, and in her post, Could You Not Stay Woke? Gaffney connects to the story of the sleeping disciples to our own drowsiness around racial injustice and white supremacy. Gaffney uses the word woke as a form of the word awake and as a callback to the phrase, stay woke, that gained popularity during the 2014 Black Lives Matter movement, and had been part of the Black community for many years prior. Some of the earliest examples of wokeness as a concept relate to the idea of Black consciousness and waking up to the reality of a racist world. In the 30s, the phrase, stay woke, appeared in the song Scottsboro Boys by Huddy Ledbetter a.k.a. Lead Belly, which describes a group of nine black teenagers in Scottsboro, Arkansas, who were accused of raping two white women. Vox's article on the history of wokeness states, Lead Belly uses stay woke in explicit association with black Americans' needs to be aware of racially motivated threats and the potential dangers of white America, end quote. And we think it's important for us to know and understand the history of the word woke, not only so we recognize our responsibility and implication in white supremacy as white people, but also to be aware of how this term has morphed into a catch-all phrase for anything liberal or left-leaning while simultaneously obscuring its strictly anti-racist roots. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so if we go back to Gaffney, in this same article that Channing noted, she powerfully writes, quote, If you woke up when Tyree Nichols was chased down and hunted for sport in the street like an animal, you woke up because you were sleeping on police violence against black and brown folk when it wasn't in the news every day. Could you not stay awake one hour? Could you not stay woke one hour? The people saying the Black Lives Matter movement is over want you to go back to sleep. When defund the police was deemed to be too woke, a lot of folk did go back to sleep. Folk were woke when it was cool, but silent when the term was co-opted and bastardized and became the newest way to say the N-word. Folk with tattered Black Lives Matter signs in their front yard making cringe woke jokes. Could you not stay awake one hour? Could you not stay woke one hour? I see you slipping and sleeping, and I see you sleepwalking through protests on your way back
0: to bed. And I just came by to tell you, stay woke." End quote. Mm. That's so good. And we recognize that such notions of wakefulness, wokeness, and sleeping invite us to ask questions like, to what am I awake? Where have I been drowsy or sleeping? How long have I been awake to a particular issue or injustice? Have I dozed off when the media coverage died down? To what issues can I not stay awake to and why? And these are important questions to be asking and are particularly relevant as we explore, as we look at this example of Peter who couldn't stay awake, even though, you know, I bet he like tried and I bet he wanted to, but he just didn't and didn't follow through. And so as, you know, as we're on the topic of Peter, Elise, I know that you kind of found a little bit of kinship with this new scripture friend.
1: Yes, Peter, Peter. When, okay, when Jesus is taken from the garden to the council of high priests and elders, they're all hoping to find a reason to finally put this Jesus guy to death. Lots of people bear false witness. And when Je- when Jesus finally speaks and agrees that he is the Christ, he's immediately condemned to be guilty of death. And now, the, of course, there's so much that could be said here about the injustice and the legal system in our contemporary day. But I do want to focus on Peter's three denials of Christ jesus shortly after and before the denial mark 14 makes it really clear that peter speaks vehemently to jesus saying if i should die with thee i will not deny thee in any wise later matthew notes or matthew also notes peter saying though all men shall be offended because of thee yet will i never be offended Then we know the rest of the story, though, that when Jesus is on trial, Peter is accused of knowing Jesus. And unfortunately, Peter denies Jesus three times. And I can really love and hate Peter in this moment. I can love him because I think he is earnest in his desire to follow Jesus to the end. However, Peter's commitment or his allyship, we could say, falls really short when his life is on the line, too. When he really has a chance to align himself in a costly way with following jesus he ends up backing out three times and in our own lives i think this is all too common we can walk the walk and talk the talk of justice transformation and revolution but when the fight could cost us our lives we often pretend as if we were never involved i was also talking to our friend kate at latter-day les about this and they had a really great take on peter that i wanted to share here They noted how Peter is all talk and loves to wear Jesus as a kind of badge of honor. Peter professes to really know Jesus. But in reality, Peter has only ever met Jesus as a caricature rather than the real Jesus standing in front of him. Peter has his own concept of what Jesus as the Messiah will do. And maybe that means trying to use the empire's tools of oppression against the empire to help set people free. But when Jesus doesn't do that, when Jesus dies at the hand of the state, Peter and all of the other disciples simply cannot believe it. Thus, for all of the time they spend together, Peter did not know the real Jesus. He only knew what he wanted to know. He only saw what he wanted to see. So when times get tough and Peter has a choice to stand with the real Jesus, the Jesus who is anti-empire and going to be put to death, Peter pretends to know nothing of this man. And maybe that's because he really doesn't. And if we can say this about Peter, how much more can we say it about ourselves? In what ways do I like to shout Jesus's name from the rooftops when it makes me look good and not when I get backed into a corner? Why do I only want the caricature of Jesus that is nice and sweet and never the one who's organizing a revolution in the streets? Maybe I love and hate Peter because I love and hate myself a little bit too. This is also not the last time we're going to see or, or encounter Peter, and I want us to be really mindful of the other ways that Peter will show up in the text and how the church get kind, gets kind of wrapped up in Peter. And what does that say about the way that Peter professes to know Jesus, but actually continues to back away from maybe the true heart of the gospel?
0: Yes, I love that. So, so important to keep in mind and to have an awareness of that, especially as we begin to move out of the Gospels and into the other portions of the New Testament. So that will be a whole nother bag to unpack when we get there. But friends, thank you so much for joining us this week for this episode. We've really enjoyed spending this time with you, and we can't wait until we see you again next week. Until then, bye! friends thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the
1: faithful feminist podcast we know your time and space is sacred and we're grateful to have spent ours with you if you enjoyed this episode we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast leaving us a loving rating on itunes or connect with us on instagram as the faithful
0: feminists we're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement we love you so so much and we hope to spend more time with you again soon bye friends